Amen. Good singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm 9, and if you're using the blue Bible in the pew pocket, you'll find that on page 451. Now, in light of the, the length of the text today, we'll read it as we make our way through the sermon. But to orient you to the text, I'd like to make somewhat of a, a cautionary statement. One year from today, exactly, you will desperately need this text. On November 3rd, 2020, the 59th quadrennial U.S. presidential election will take place. And from that time, or to that time, from now, your anxiety as an American, will perpetually increase. For those of you who even try to stay away from news and current events, you can't resist it. You will be sucked in, and your stress levels will rise. And I don't think it's just about a particular political party. Our stress levels will rise as Americans who value certain Christian principles that our country seemingly were founded upon. And the presidential election itself will actually make it clear that these things are actually under attack. It's already been seen in recent weeks. In a recent debate that just took place a couple of weeks ago, it was made clear in a section on the LGBTQ movement, that many of the presidential candidates for a particular political platform were interested in attacking not only people's beliefs and traditional biblical values on marriage, but they wanted to silence them, removing any form of tax-exempt status. This was said several times in the course of the debate to the overwhelming applause of the audience. One of the candidates actually said, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and full civil rights of every single one of us. Now, by full human rights and full civil rights, he means the the right to express your sexuality in ways that contradict Scripture and for people to support that. He says, so as president, we're going to make that a priority. We're going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. We're going to stop people who believe what the Bible has to say about the home and about gender. It was the Obama-appointed Solicitor General of the United States who stated before the Supreme Court just a few years ago that claims of religious liberty would be an issue in the United States. Mark Tushnet, a Harvard Law professor, unabashedly declared, the culture wars are over. They lost, we won. They being people who believe the Bible, (laughs) we won. He continued, for liberals, the question now is how to deal with the losers in the culture wars. And that's mostly a question of tactics. My own judgment is that taking the hard line, you lost, live with it, is better than trying to accommodate the losers who, remember, defended and are defending positions the liberals regard as having no normative pull at all. And taking a hard line seemed to work reasonably well in Germany and Japan after 1945. Now, let me break down the political dialogue for you. This particular commentator is actually saying that conservative Christians are like the losers of World War II, the Germans and the Japanese. Basically, he's saying that Christians, traditional Roman Catholics, Orthodox Jews, and Muslims who cannot join the sexual revolution ought to receive the treatment of a defeated foe. And Al Mohler comments, 
Now, in 2020, the Democratic primary for the President of the United States has handed down this ultimatum. The time is up for conservative Christianity. Anyone who will not join the sexual revolution is an enemy combatant, not worthy of protection, nor having a voice in the public process. You see the hostility? Friends, it isn't just like, I happen to disagree with you, let's just agree to disagree. We, as people who believe the Scriptures are increasingly being viewed as not just someone who differs, but an opponent, an enemy, someone to be defeated, someone to be squashed, someone to be silenced, and it just sucks you in. That this irreversible attack, by the way, has continued. It is nothing new. We've seen it in our own country over the course of years. I mean, if you just kind of follow your history back a little bit, you, you go from the political primaries of 2019 just simply back to Obergefell of 2015, which legalized gay marriage in our country. It was a supposed loss for biblical values. Rewind the tape a little more, and where do you end up? Well, just look in this 1973, Roe v. Wade, the legalized infanticide of children. Forty million have died since that time. Rewind it a little more, and you've got 1963, Madeline Murray O'Hare wins her case with the Supreme Court. And what happens? Prayers removed from schools. You look at the fundamentalist liberal controversies of the early 20th century, and what do you understand? Oh, now evolutionary theory is the dogma for public school education. And so, here in our country, only a couple hundred years old, we've seen values eroded and we've seen an attack that is full on. That's just our country. Did you know, or have you realized, that this is the norm across the world and has been for millennia? Christians never really enjoy this type of freedom. It's been an anomaly, it's been something to, to really value, but it's not something that we've always had. Most believers never experience anything close to this. They are not just marginalized and maligned. Not, they don't just lose tax-exempt status. They lose their lives. They lose their liberty. They are actually thrown in jail for what they believe and preach about the gospel. There are places in the world right now, in northern Africa, and in the 1040 window, where people are literally beheaded for saying that they believe in Jesus Christ. And it is... Illegal, outlawed in Russia and in communist China to proselytize people with the gospel. You actually get thrown into prison. And these are two of the largest countries in the world. Friends, this is the norm. And it always has been. For thousands of years, it has always been this way. The, the people of God have always had... Enemies, people who wanted to silence them, attack them. It's inevitable. So what's our response? I think a couple of responses down through the years, especially here in the United States, maybe even in a context like ours, are those of the ostrich and the warrior. Uh, the ostrich is the person who simply says, oh, I hate that you're talking about this stuff. I intentionally don't listen to this, and they stick their head in the sand, and they just hope that nothing bad happens. <laughs> Friends, that's not a good defense strategy, but some do it. They just say, don't tell me about this. Don't tell me about this. I don't want to know. And some people are more like the warrior, the cultural crusader, the one who is going to win America back. And so they try by all kinds of political means or even financial investment or arguments on social media or in the broader social sphere. They're going to win this war. And that is an option too. But there's a very horizontal way of looking at it. There's a vertical strategy commended to us actually by the psalmist himself. Someone, by the way, who was no stranger to real attack. You need to understand as we look at this psalm that it is written by a monarch, presumably David, who is familiar with real battle on behalf of God Almighty Himself. See, at this point in the history of Christianity, in the history of the people of God, there was one particular little nation that represented God to the entire world. 
And the extinction of this nation would be the extinction of the purposes of God and the entire planet. If these people could have been removed, marginalized, exiled, murdered, God's purposes, as promised in His Word, would have absolutely failed. So David naturally feels this this weight. Every battle matters. It's not just about his kingdom. It literally is about God's kingdom. And what has he seen as he reflects? He's seen enemy after enemy come and enemy after enemy go. God has regularly protected his people. And as he faces a new opponent, he rehearses the truths of God's victory over his enemies to prepare himself for the battle to come. It is a dominant theme in this text. You'll see enemies referred to about 20 times. And you'll see defeat or punishment also referred to about 20 times. And the better question for us, though, is what do we do with the truth? How does it help us? How does it inform the strategy, if you will? If If we know that God punishes our enemies, how will that help us as we move ahead knowing that opposition is on its way? Well, the text will provide two strategies. And just for the sake of time and attention, I'll read them as they come. But the first one is very clear. You'll see it in verses 1 through 12. And the truth that God punishes our enemies moves us to confidence expressed in praise. How do we respond when we are overwhelmingly oppressed by the presence of enemies? When that intimidates us, confident praise. This is what the psalmist will commend to us. Confident praise. Praise. Look at just the first couple verses of Psalm 9. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, what he's doing here is is he's actually telling himself, he's talking to himself, I am going to look on not just the bright side of things, but the godly side of things. I will reflect on what God himself is doing. Do you see the I will, I will, I will, I will? He is declaring that he's going to praise. Now, we need to be like just take a little lesson about praise right here from the opening verses of the Psalter because we see that praise, contrary to popular belief, isn't something that happens to us. Like we think praise is an emotional response to something. He's saying praise is something that you do. It is something that you choose to do. You don't work yourself into it. You don't just happen to get struck by it. But it's actually something that you enter into. And he gives several components of what this praise looks like. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord. So that's part of praise. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I think we all know the difference between somebody giving us wholehearted praise and thanks and half-hearted praise and thanks. The kid that's been forced to thank their mother for dinner at night, that's half-hearted praise. Thank you. This is wholehearted praise. This is one who thanks their mom for making a dessert. Thank you. (laughs) He says, I will do this with my whole heart. I'm not just going to do it out of just habit. I will be all in. And then he even adds to that, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. What's part of praise? Actually rehearsing what God has done. Friends, you may not realize it, but recounting That means like saying again what God has done is in and of itself praise. Praise is not just your feelings. Praise is an action. And when we actually verbalize and tell other people what God has done in the past, that's praise. We do that as we sing. We do that as we share stories with our children. We do that when we encourage one another with Scripture. It's praise. He also says, I will be glad and exult in you. Notice this. He's going to find joy and significance in who? In God. In God most high. Every one of you in this room, you've got to admit it, you know how to find joy and significance in anything. In anything. I just think of the way that people stare at their phones. I see how they light up when they win that round of Candy Crush. They have kicked butt. They have taken names. They have dominated an opponent. 
They know what it is to actually like look into this and say, yay, I won. I, I mean, like, it's just a piece of technology. But people do the same thing with their work. People do with the same thing with their bank account. You, friends, choose what you find joy and significance in. And the psalmist says here, I will find my joy and significance in you, O Most High. That is praise. When you find yourself happy because of the relationship that you enjoy with Him, when you consider yourself important, not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done for you. And then the final component of praise is, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. It actually is singing. It is the natural response when someone is happy. They hum a tune. They sing a song. And what He sings about is Yahweh Most High. The Most High God fills the content of His song. I've even had to check myself in recent days because we listen to Spotify regularly at our house, and one of our favorite playlists is titled, Have a Great Day. And it is like the most banal soundtrack of all time. I mean, it is, you know, probably 40 or 50 of the happiest songs from the last 50 or 60 years, but they don't talk about anything. I mean, it is just empty and hollow, and yet we find ourselves singing these little tunes where the psalmist is telling us, look, don't just make yourself happy in the banal and the empty. Sing songs that will remind you of your eternal God. That is praise. It's filling in the lines with, with truths about God. And so letting, for example, what you're singing on Sunday be expressions of joy throughout the week, that's praise. And so he seems resolved. But the question is this, though. He's going to praise God, but about what? What is he going to praise God for? Always told us is that he is determined to praise God. We should be determined to praise God. But he starts to fill in the content of that praise in verses 3 and 4. Look in your text again. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause and have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. Now, he's immediately going to start talking about his enemies. And he particularly talks about them turning back like they've retreated. He's thinking about this time where his enemies retreated, and not only were they running away, but they perished before God's presence. When God shows up, the enemies go down. (laughs) That's the way it works. He remembers that when God was present, the enemies went down. And why did God do that? Verse 4, because you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. The nations that were opposing David and his purposes, they were real. They were present. And David identifies himself with the cause, the cause of the name of God. He, He wanted to see God's purposes established on this earth. And when they were opposing his cause, it was as if they were opposing God himself because God is aligned with David. And he says, you have maintained my just cause and you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. God has regularly protected his purposes in this world. It is the characteristic, normal way that he operates. And there are consequences of this characteristic rule of God for the enemies of his people. They're listed rather soberly. In verses 8, or excuse me, verses 5 and 6. Notice this. Because God sits on the throne, giving righteous judgment, verse 5, he's going to list off a bunch of verbs here. You have, talking about God, rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Just follow it in your text. The first one is condemnation. Like He has condemned them through the prophets. He has told them that they are guilty and that they are going down. He has rebuked them. But not only that, he has actually killed them. It has been regular for God to assassinate threats against his people. And it says that he rebuked the nations. He made the wicked perish. And you would think, well, what else do you do after that? I mean, you rebuke somebody and then you execute them. Can it get any worse? Well, we're going to get a verse and a half of what actually would be worse in the ancient Near Eastern mind. They accepted the inevitability of death. But for 
The, the person in the ancient Near East, they could not fathom the idea of their legacy being obliterated. They wanted a legacy. And what does God do? He not only executes them, He blots out their name forever and ever. He erases it off the whiteboard as if it was never there. And then He adds that whatever it was that the unrighteous were trying to do, it will not ultimately stand. But not only is their name wiped out, but it says that the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Not just ruins, but everlasting ruins. It means that it never got built back up again. And then notice this. This is a great agricultural metaphor. Their cities you rooted out. You ever rooted something out? You know what it is to use a weed eater, for example, and to like, try to kill the weeds along you know, your, your driveway or maybe in your bushes. I used to do that. It was the lazy way. Dad would tell me to pull the weeds. I would just take the weed eater and actually like, go take it into the garden bed and like, try to knock down the weeds that way. <laughs> um, problem is, they come back. But when you do the job the right way, you uproot them, and you even hear that plucking you know, of the, like, the roots just like breaking. You know you did it right then. He's saying... Their cities, their fortifications have been uprooted. Like, not to return, not to grow back. He even adds that it would be an everlasting destruction. The very memory of them has perished. So God is is thorough. He, He is regularly put a stop to opposition in His name. For those who have tried to stop Him, they have regularly failed. In contrast to their purposes, look at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever and ever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Notice this. It is what we just sang about, and behold our God. He is presenting, in contrast to the nations who fall and who are erased, a God who eternally sits on His throne, always accomplishing that which He ultimately intends. God is never off the throne of the universe, even when it seems like it. He sits forever. He's established His throne for justice. That which is right will ultimately come to pass. He regularly judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. It may seem like all is going wrong, but God is the ruler yet. He ultimately brings about right. And He is not just a ruler securing that which is right, but He is a refuge offering protection. The text adds in verse 9, look at it. The Lord, or Yahweh, is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And for those who know Your name, they put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Notice that he's not just a ruler, but he is a refuge. He he is a high point in attack. He is like the fort that you run to to seek protection. And he particularly talks about two different kinds of opponents. He talks about external opponents or adversaries, people who would attack God and his purposes, his people. But he even talks about trouble and distress. The, The word that you see there in your text, a stronghold in times of trouble, that word trouble literally means famine. It isn't external resources, it is internal resources. It's when you don't have that which you need to live, and he says God is a protection in that time as well. But I want you to notice something, friends, because it would be easy for anybody to take this passage and say, man, I am so glad that God is a refuge and a ruler for me. But here's the question. This is very important. Is he really a refuge and a ruler for you? I say that because the text doesn't promise this for everybody. It promises it for a a pretty narrow group of people. Look at verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, or O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Who are the oppressed that receive help? Who are the troubled that receive protection? It is those who put their trust in Him. It is those who seek Him. Those are the ones that He doesn't forsake. Friends, 
the, the promises of God are extremely persistent. I mean, specific. They're specific insofar as they're referent. Like, this is the, the God of the Bible who has revealed Himself ultimately in Jesus Christ. This isn't just the generic deity out there. He is actually talking about the God of the Scriptures. Again, who ultimately expresses Himself in Christ. Jesus made it clear for us. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father. No man receives the benefits of the Father apart from Me. Or He would say it later in 1 John 5. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. The benefits that God offers are expressed in the Son Himself. And so the key to this is, if you have the Son, if you're trusting in Him, if you're seeking refuge in Him, the passage that we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians is one of the really more fearful passages in the New Testament because of its startling specificity. It talks about God coming to eliminate uh, the, the enemies uh, of His people, and He's going to neutralize all the threats. But in the context, He's talking about threats to people who believe in Jesus, and He makes it crystal clear. Listen to these rather scary words. God considers it, starting at verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those, listen to this, who are the people that He is on the attack for? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus exercises judgment, it isn't just whoever we think is an enemy. It is particularly the enemies of God. As defined by those who do not know God, those who are not in relationship with Him, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. For this is heavy. This is hard. When we come to a passage about God's retribution, we can't just idly rejoice and say, all right, God's going to just eliminate all my problems. Listen, there are people who are actually going to be punished by God forever as a result of their rebellion against Him. And it should break our hearts. It should move us to compassion. But in the end, it should cause us to celebrate the righteousness of God as hard as that seems. This is the truth. A high and holy God has been offended. He has been, people have rebelled against Him. And there is a high cost for that. There's a high cost for that. And so we wonder who then receives the benefit of this promise. It is anyone who has trusted himself or herself to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. This is the refuge. It is in Christ. The wrath that was due all those enemies, anybody who had ever opposed God. It talks about eternal wrath being suffered. It has been endured by Jesus Christ, and anyone who trusts in Him will receive the benefit of that payment, and also God will provide the righteousness of Christ to Him as well. And so He will be forever protected. The refuge, the protection comes in Christ. And we're supposed to express praise for this. Friends, it may seem that injustice abounds. Uh, things will and do wax worse and worse. But this text reminds us that though the wheels of justice turn slowly, they do indeed still turn. Though the wheels of justice turn slowly, they do indeed still turn. It, there are always moments where it seems like God is not on the throne. God is not executing uh, the wrath upon the wicked. That evil purposes are prevailing. And it's just not time yet. It's just not time yet. There's a difference between justice delayed and justice denied. 
It is the grace of God Himself to those who rebel against Him that He allows such atrocities to persist. And we should regularly then be rehearsing the fact that it is just the normal pattern of God to do that which is right in the end. You have to confidently express praise to remind yourself that justice will still ultimately come to pass. We are not forgetting this. We can't forget this. A few, a couple years ago, uh, Rob Clark was helping out our elder team and he had us take a little uh, test, like a personality kind of test thing, and it talked about the, the culture of the, the group of pastors here, and it said what the group was good at, and it said what the, th- the group was bad at. Uh, and one of the interesting things um, that it said that we were really bad at is celebrating wins. We just always wanted to move on to the next thing, and we just didn't celebrate wins. I, I don't know if any of you are like that, where... You just, something goes well, and you're like, oh, well, there's something else to do. You know what this text is telling us? You need to get good at celebrating wins. God has won in a myriad of ways through the millennia, and we're fretting about the next presidential election. You must regularly speak truth about what God has already accomplished. It will reorient your heart in confident praise to Him. So how do I do that? Well, friends, you do that simply through just regular expressions of praise over what you're reading in the Word. You do this in in family worship times or devotional times where you tell your kids those same old stories that you heard growing up about the victories that God has won both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's praise. You're, You're rehearsing truth. You're reminding yourself that God has regularly won. He regularly accomplishes His purposes. We we do that here together on Sunday morning as we sing songs like we have today about God's victory. What are we doing? We're forcing ourselves to acknowledge a reality that we would otherwise not celebrate. It's just so easy to forget about what has happened and just keep our focus on the new threat. And the text is saying, no, don't focus on the new threat. Focus on what God has done so that you can be confident of the way He will work in the future. So, the believer's responsibility then, when surrounded by opposition, is to actually Rehearse what God has done to, to praise, to, to confidently praise. But we not only think about this principle of God ruling over the wicked to move us to confident praise, but there's a second response that should be engendered as we think about this truth, and that is dependent prayer. Remembering that God rules over all should move us to confident praise, but it should also move us to dependent prayer. Dependence expressed in prayer. This is verses 13 to 20. And take just a a little look at this quickly. You're going to see, actually, look at verse 11 and 12. (laughs) I missed that. I apologize, but I don't want to skip anything. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people His deeds... For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What is he telling them? Sing praise. Do exactly what I'm doing. You join in on this praise. Now, he tells them not only to praise, but notice how he transitions to prayer. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Skip down to verses 19 and 20. He's going to close in prayer. Do you see it there? Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. He's speaking to God in verses 13 and 14. He's speaking to God in verses 19 and 20. And in this whole thing, he is not only being moved to praise, that's one thing, but he's also acknowledging that this thing is bigger than I am, and I must ask God for his help. As a ruler who has reflected on the ways that God has worked in the past, he is also being moved to express his reliance in prayer. It's a simple prayer. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. Show me grace. See my affliction. Take notice of the ways that I'm suffering among those who hate me. Be gracious to me, O Lord. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Lord, you who can deliver me from evil. 
And, and why is he praying this way? It isn't just so that his life will be more comfortable. Look at verse 14. He says, That I may recount all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and I may rejoice in your salvation. It's an interesting phrase, the gates of the daughter of Zion. He's saying that he wants God's name to be honored in places where it really matters. He wants God to be celebrated in a place of wide-scale influence. The gates of the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion is just an allusion to Jerusalem, the city of God. The gates represent the place of political influence. He's saying, look, if you will deliver me, what's going to happen is I'm then going to tell all the politically influential people the great things that you have done. Your name will be magnified if you show up and help me out in this way. There's his, there's his interest. He is interested in the glory of God being spread throughout the world. And so he prays. He, he prays confidently because notice this review that he does in these verses. Verses 15 and 17, he reviews something that he already has, and that is God's punishment over his enemies. He, he just won't let this go. Notice it. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Selah. Uh, did anybody ever uh, watch Looney Tunes growing up? I did. I, I will still go to the public library when our card doesn't have stuff that's overdue on it and rent uh, Looney Tunes for my children. It's interesting. You can't really find it anymore. Uh, I... <laughs> There's warnings. There's actually warnings on the DVD that say um, there are some things that uh, are offensive to a modern cultural audience. And I, I'm just I'm like, well, wow. <laughs> uh, I, I Maybe one of the things, just the violence, I don't know. But it, warning accepted. We watch the videos anyway. And one of my favorites is particularly uh, Wiley Coyote and his exploits with Roadrunner. I mean, those are some pretty creative writers. For the fact that Wiley e. Coyote will never catch the Roadrunner. And every single time, who knows, hundreds of instances this has happened, in which his plan to harm the Roadrunner actually harms him. It always backfires. It always harms him. You notice this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. He's saying God has a way of bringing about justice... That doesn't even require his active intervention. It's just that the plans of the evil backfire on them. Look at it again. He says, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. They fell in their own trap. And the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Why did this happen? Because Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. And then he says it again. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. (laughs) He's confident in prayer because he knows that God has this beautifully ironic tendency to take the designs of the wicked and then to turn it against them. It's not even his active intervention. It's their own plan backfiring on them. It's their own sin. It's their own foolishness actually bringing about their destruction. He reviews that God punishes the wicked, but he gives another review very quickly in verse 17, excuse me, he also talks about their destiny. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. So their demise, again, is permanent. They go to the grave. Everyone that forgets God, he's saying that this is their ultimate destination. And what does this lead to? Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The punishment of the wicked, the protection of the righteous. The punishment of the wicked, the protection of the righteousness. Over and over and over again, David finds confidence in one of the doctrines that you and I feel most uncomfortable with. That's why I was praying that way in the pastoral prayer. We get antsy about the doctrine of God's righteousness and His wrath. But David revels in it. He rejoices in it. He finds refuge in it because he knows that this is the ultimate source of his protection. Friends, the reason why we feel uncomfortable with it is because we often think ourselves to be a lot stronger than we really are. For those who have truly been oppressed, for those who have truly suffered at the hands of a cruel and unjust enemy, those are the ones who want real 
retribution. In, I say this respectfully and kindly, but we live in a rather protected American bubble, and things have been very good for us overall for the last 200 years. But just think back to the atrocities committed in somewhere like South Africa in the last century, where hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered. I mean, you, you think about the Holocaust and what those people went through. I mean, there have been some huge injustices done and committed in this world, and it isn't just a, oh, I just hope they slap them on the wrist and move on. I mean, like, you want, like, revenge. You want execution. For any of you who have ever watched, like, for example, a, a movie like The Patriot, basically any movie Mel Gibson has ever been in. But I think of The Patriot especially. You watch the opening scenes of that movie and you see this guy and you see what happens to his family. And what wells up within you? Justice. Give me justice. I want this guy to get justice. It's a righteous response. And God's people through the millennia have been suffering at the hands of wicked ones. And God promises justice. He promises ultimate protection and safety. And what should that do for us? It moves us to prayer. Prayer. We realize that He is the only one that can bring this about. Look at verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. He wants them to know that they are mere mortals, that God is God, and that they are man. You know what he's actually praying for? Not only that God would be reverenced, but he's praying that their heart would change toward Almighty God. In a surprising turn, the last thing that the psalmist prays for here is not just the destruction of his enemies. Listen to this, friend. But he prays for the conversion of his enemies. He prays that they would finally understand that God is to be God and that they are not. He prays that they would respond appropriately to Him in fear, in reverence, in awe, in worship. But He asks God for it because only God Himself can do it. And such is the nature of adversity. It's a great statement, not original with me. I don't know where it came from but just put quotation marks around it. Adversity is opportunity for God to do something great. Adversity is opportunity for God to do something great. God allows us at times to feel the pressure of attack to move us to dependence upon Him. It is so easy for us to think that we've just got it all together, that we are the captains of our own souls. And yet God will not allow us to to move, to operate, to work without a regular dependence upon Him in prayer. It's like some things He just puts on the top shelf where we just can't reach it. Just to force us to ask. All you got to do is ask. All you got and and what's happening in that moment is amazing because when we are forced to prayerful dependence, we are entering in on the working of God Himself. It's a regular question you've asked it. I know you have. Why pray if God is so powerful? If God is so omnipotent? If He's so sovereign? Why are we responsible for prayer? Two answers to that. One. It reveals your, I mean, excuse me, it reveals His power. When you are forced to pray, you are forced to recognize His power. You can't reach the top shelf. The second reason why we pray is because it allows us to participate in His plan. It not only forces us to recognize His power, but it also allows us to participate in His plan. Have you thought about that? The fact that God allows you to enter into partnership with Him and the grand purposes of the world? It's like the dad who tells his child, 
look, I'm going to buy you a bike. It's going to cost $100. You just need to raise 10 And you raise 10 And so the kid works hard and, and like saves up the money, the, the allowance, you know, scraping pennies from wherever they can find it so that when that fateful day comes and they show up to the toy store to buy the bike, the child throws his $10 on the counter with pride, thinking that he has actually contributed to the process. He thinks, I am buying this bike. In reality, the other 90 is being covered by the father, and the scrap of 10 would have never come to the child had the parent not given him other means and opportunities for getting it. At the end of the day, 100%, the father bought the bike, but the son gets to enter in on the experience. And so also, friends, you get to enter in. You see adversity, you see problem, you see stress, you see anxiety, and it forces you to pray, and you put your little $10 on the counter, and God says, good job, way to play a part. You're in. You contribute. See, prayer can be one of the most guilt-inducing topics in all the church. You ever want to make somebody feel bad, just ask them with a serious face, how's your prayer life been lately? On a scale of 1 to 10, tell me how your prayer life has been. Friends, I don't want to guilt you into prayer. What our problem is in prayer isn't that we don't feel guilty enough about it. It's we just don't recognize the real problem. The real problem is not prayerlessness. The real problem is pride. Because we think that we can do everything that we need to do without Him. It's a, what I would call a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Uh, to illustrate, a lagging indicator is a thermometer. It tells you the temperature of something already. A leading indicator, something that will produce change, is a thermostat. It is something that will change the entire environment. When I assess my own prayer life, when you assess yours, it is not a thermometer as much as it is, excuse me, it is not a thermostat as much as it is a thermometer. It is revealing how much you think you need God. And people who think they need God, they ask Him for stuff regularly, a lot. And so, David here is recognized in light of the enemies, he must have God's help. He needs God to intervene. So if you're not praying, friends, if you ever feel guilty about that question, one of two things is true. You're either ignoring your need or you're ignoring His plan. You're either ignoring your need or ignoring His plan. Either you're saying, I've got this, it's not that bad, I'm doing pretty good, or you're ignoring His plan. You think that he would work a different way. No, God has said, I will work in the way that I've chosen to work, and that is through prayer. Ask and you shall receive. Francois Marie Auray. That was his name, his real name. His um, pen name was Voltaire. He was born in Paris, France in 1694, and as a philosopher and a historian and a free thinker, he became the most influential and prolific writer during what has been called the Age of Enlightenment. Maybe you remember that from your history books. During his life, I mean, he was prolific. He wrote more than 20,000 letters and 2,000 pamphlets and books and was a successful playwright. The topic of choice, what was he so consumed to accomplish? The demise of Christianity. He hated it. He called the Christian religion the infamous superstition. In 1764, he wrote, the Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach and young children are made to learn by heart. Just a few years later, in a letter to Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, he wrote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating or exterminating the world of this infamous superstition. 
And so he was so determined to see the demise of Christianity that he would regularly tout that we were living in what he called the twilight of Christianity, meaning that it would soon see its last days. He thought that the Enlightenment would certainly put an end to this erroneous movement. In fact, he was so committed to it that in his letters to his friends, he would sign, Ecrasas l'infame. Crush the infamy. Meaning, crush Christianity. In calling for the downfall of Christianity, some have summarized Voltaire's statement into this one. His, his quintessential expression of what he was trying to accomplish. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. And it was a bold prediction. And it seemed like when you follow the history of the day that it was going to come true. Something interesting happened. Providentially, only 50 years later, there was an ironic twist of God's working in the very house in which he once lived. And the very printing press that he once used to publish his blasphemies was taken over by the Evangelical Society of Geneva, and Bibles were stored in his bedroom, and his printing press was used to publish the gospel. Such is the way that God works. There there are these moments, there are these times where it just seems like, man, we're going down. This is bad. There's always evil present, but one day it will perish, and God will use the very things intended to destroy His purposes to advance them. The pressure and opposition will come and go, it will ebb and flow, but the principle of divine punishment will carry us through. Dear church family, I tell you this today, a a marathon, a gauntlet lies before us. If you follow the cultural trend, I don't see things getting better. And I'm not trying to cry the sky is falling. But just truth is, it's getting worse and worse. And we've got to be ready. We have got to be ready. It is like knowing that there is a marathon coming up. You've got 16 weeks to get ready. What do you do? You've got a year, you've got 16 weeks, you've got a few years. What do we do in the pressure cooker that is one day soon to come? How do we prepare? Ostrich theology. Stick our heads in the sand and just ignore it and hope for better days. Cultural crusading. Mobilizing all our political might to start a new movement. Those horizontal options will not do. It must be vertical. We need a very clear understanding of the sovereignty of God that will drive us to confident praise and dependent prayer. Confident praise and dependent prayer. Let me close with just some practical expressions of both of these. Already mentioned, but to review. I'll begin with prayer. Friends, it must be our habit now to be characterized by regular dependence upon God, not just for our personal problems, but our church problems, our national problems. Whatever is pressing in against the agenda of God, we must give it to Him in prayer. Opportunities include, friends, I want you to be encouraged by this. This very gathering when we pray, We are actually praying. We are conditioning ourselves to depend on God as a body. It counts. (laughs) Say, oh, it doesn't count. I was at church. Only private prayer counts. I don't know where that mindset comes from, but please throw it away and never remember it again. It actually counts when we pray in church. You want to know something that's true? The reason why I value our corporate prayer times, not just what we do in this service, but our prayer together service, is because it is actually easier for me to pray out loud with people that I know share common values than it is for me to pray by myself. I know you're thinking, oh, I can't believe that the pastor says that he struggles to pray. Listen, when I pray privately, my mind wanders. It is just so hard. But when I pray with other people, 
We remain focused. And that is something that we need to, sorry for the southern phrase here, we need to get good at. We've got to get good at it. And yes, personal prayer. I would encourage you, friends, for those of you who are news addicts, I pray that the worry that you experience watching the news would be overtaken by your dependence upon prayer. Here's what you need to do. Go ahead and watch whatever 20 minutes is going to stir you up one day, and then turn it off, because they're just going to repeat the next thing. I'm telling you, they just run in cycles. So it goes 20 minutes at a time, then they're going to repeat all the same stuff again. Once they get to the repeat, that's when you turn it off, and then just pray about all the stuff you're worried about. Let it work you up, and then let prayer calm you down. This is what will get us ready for this marathon. Regular, dependent prayer. But that's not all. Also, confident expressions of praise. Not just, Lord, we need, we need, we need, but Lord, we have, we have, we have. You have been so good to us. You have brought us through so many times. What would this look like? Well, it's opportunities for you just to share, like things that you're reading in the Word, victories that you've seen God accomplish through His Word. An unexpected source of this would actually be, friends, I don't think I've ever recommended this, but I should more often, reading church history. Reading church history. You could see 2,000 years of the way that Christianity has been threatened and the way that Christ has conquered, eliminated the enemies, and the purposes of God have moved on. It is amazing. I'll even give you a book recommendation. The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. It's a history of the English Reformation. You've heard of the Protestant Reformation. You've probably never heard of the English one. The reason we have an English Bible today is because of the English Reformation. You ought to hear the way that God worked in a mighty way and obliterated enemies and supported His people. We should be connoisseurs of God's victories, being able to actually explain them to other people regularly in praise. Another way that we express praise is just through journaling answered prayer. I remember, especially in times of political duress, where I and others around me have prayed and prayed and prayed, and guess what? God answered And it's like we forget. It's like every four years we forget that God has been at work. He has been answering prayers. You know that certain laws have been overturned? Have you thought about, just for example, for those of you who, of us who share Judeo-Christian values, like what has happened in our Supreme Court over the last four years? Those are answers to prayer. To see, conservative-leaning these Bible-respecting type of people in places of influence, like God has been answering prayer. He continues to answer prayer. And we just too easily forget. And so, we need to chart a course and say, it will be regular for me to talk about the wins, to celebrate the victories. That's what will prepare us for what we face in days ahead. It is in family worship. It is in this corporate gathering. We must be proficient at praise These are the environments that steel our heart against worry and promote a confident expression of praise. And you know what the greatest expression of praise is? The ultimate source of victory that needs to be leaned on above all else. That is the victory that we have ultimately enjoyed in our Lord Jesus Christ. All these ideological and political concerns, or one expression of opposition. All right, follow me here. But they lead to an even greater and realer expression of opposition, and that is actual physical attack. So the ideas lead to actual physical attack and consequences that we see happening in other parts of the world. But did you know that there's something even beyond that? It's the evil heart, the one that is like controlled by the purposes of the devil himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says that all of us have been born into sin and we are actually under darkness and his influence apart from the intervention of Christ. And Ephesians 6 reminds us that our real enemies, our real concerns, are not the things that we can see, but it's the things that we cannot see. There's, there's rulers and principalities and powers. And guess what? The, the source of it, like 
get back to the root of it. It has been uprooted already. Jesus Christ has conquered the source of all evil itself insofar as He absorbed the penalty that evil tried to bring upon us, and He actually imparted the gift of life that evil tried to keep from us. It is in His death and burial and resurrection, realizing that He has fixed the greatest problem. He has overcome the greatest enemy that we have hope for all the smaller ones. We have hope for the physical threats. We have hope for the ideological and political threats because the greatest threat, the eternal threat, has been satisfied in Him. And so, friends, let us get good (laughs) at rehearsing the victory of Christ, remembering it, 